0: Hello and welcome to a special edition of Decoding the Gurus. All our podcast episodes are special, I think, but this is a very special one a rapid response to quickly developing shit that's happening in the online sphere. I'm Matt Brown as usual, and with me, also as usual, is Chris Kavanagh. How are you doing, Chris?
1: Not bad. Not
0: bad. Cool, cool. Ever,
1: ever. I don't have everything teed up, I'm afraid. So that's, that's how special That's okay.
0: It is. That's okay. I'm on a roll. So, But you have initiated the special edition because there's uh, developments that, uh, you know, it's important to respond to in a prompt manner. Uh, so what are we going to be uh, responding to now?
1: Yeah. So I, I called you on the Decoding the Guru's red emergency phone <laughs> uh, because there, there was some amazing nonsense that had appeared on the internet. So uh, <laughs> I, I I thought you needed to be alerted. Um, and that nonsense happens to be, in this case, Eric Weinstein, who we covered on the the inaugural episode of the podcast, released a new over-four-hour episode with Douglas Murray, the conservative social commentator called... Heroism 2020, Defense of Our Own Civilization, that episode itself could be the subject of a later episode looking at Douglas Murray and what he does. But what caught my eye was the 18-minute audio essay, as Eric describes it, that
0: he put at the beginning of the podcast. An audio, an audio essay, you say, and uh, and and this is in the broader context of uh, heroes defending our civilization. That doesn't sound like Eric at all. That sounds very self-aggrandizing and hyperbolic.
1: I, uh, yeah, it's uncharacteristic for him, certainly. But yeah, the the little intro seems completely independent from the discussion with Douglas Murray, except that it's laced with the same themes of societal importance and Eric and his friends being at the center of all such things mm. but Eric has been releasing these little audio essays or you know mini diatribes at the beginning of the portal <laughs> episodes since since probably about i don't know episode 15 or thereabouts i, I can't remember when he started doing that but they're really interesting from our podcast point of view because they're super condensed conspiracism and guruisms all neatly packaged into these 10 to 15 minute condensed audio splurges i don't i don't know what to call them but if you're interested in conspiracy psychology or the way that online gurus construct their arguments they're like crack yeah. <laughs> because they, they, they just pump so much into
0: such a short Period. Yeah. Well, look, I I did listen to this one. I have heard a few, and I think you're right about that. Um, I got to tell Chris, I um, I don't know. Maybe I was tired or something when I was listening to it, but I, I, it made very little sense to me. I think um, it just it washed over me. I I, I struggled to figure out what on earth he was getting at I mean I could understand individual sentences but I think I was missing the point but I'm I'm hoping as we if we go through it again together you'll be able to help me with it
1: let's see let's see if that's true but I will say I had a similar reaction where a bit like with Jordan Peterson or or also the Weinstein's other content if you just consume it and let it wash over you it has a kind of uh, Free flowing, uh, uh, hypnotic, and I don't mean that in the you know Rasputin kind of way. I mean just cognitively engaging cadence to it, where it all rolls out, and you and you get the the general picture. Some bad things are afoot, and how it all hangs together isn't necessarily that obvious. But but it, it sounds good. However, if you go back and do the kind of weird things that I do, where you you know you take each sentence you look for it and you break it down it it does make sense because he's he's written it out obviously beforehand he's reading it and it's it's just remarkable how ridiculous (laughs) it is and 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 all of the connections that have been like put together so when you you know like with a jordan peterson analogy when you start to break it down they so badly fall apart
0: yeah, I think yeah, it, yeah, it should be a good exercise, I think, to really just just make it explicit. What is it exactly that he's saying? And yeah, just see if it makes sense.
1: Yeah. So this is a, an uncharacteristically deep dive, given that it's an 18-minute segment, and I suspect we'll take longer than that to go for it. Um, okay, <laughs> so let me start off by playing Eric introducing what the segment is about.
2: Hello, all. The subject of this audio essay is my absence, the tech platforms, the 2020 election, Gene Seberg, and oddly enough, Article 58 of the former Soviet Union's Russian penal code.
1: Yes. So uh, it, it's got all of the hallmarks of Eric's content, where there's a lot of different topics being linked together, some obscure references to penal codes and the Gene Seberg conspiracy. What's that? So... It's it's a smorgasbord that he's promising to weave into a narrative. Yes,
0: one, one suspects that all of these um, particular bits of information are going to be woven together to make some grand points.
1: Yeah, and maybe before we get into the meat of how the conspiracies which he outlines hang together, it would be worth just flagging up a couple of the themes that we've talked about in previous episodes these, these techniques that gurus use that we see repeatedly. So one of them is this personal engagement with the audience and presenting them not just as an audience, but as friends.
2: I want to ensure that we can continue talking and building the community that has sprung up around the podcast. Portal Nation, if you will, is a place where I choose to spend my own free time with perhaps less distance than I should have with my audience, as many of you have become my friends.
0: Yeah, so yeah, you're not you're not just an audience. No, no, and you know, like we've talked about this before. To some degree, that's understandable in this kind of Web 2.0 interactive media, that sort of audience engagement. But yeah, it's fair to say um, some people do it more than others, and there's a kind of a tone to it also, which um, which is a bit stronger with people like Eric. I mean, if you compare him with someone like Stephen Pinker, like no, I don't think Stephen Pinker does this kind of thing where he's it's not something that yeah these these um public intellectuals who write books like you know, Richard, Richard Dawkins doesn't do this like, These these people who write books or, or Sam Harris yeah and and he has even though he does have a popular podcast and all that stuff so yeah it's just a thing isn't it it's about making that special yeah. group and yeah that emotional connection yeah
1: and i you you summarized that very nicely map and like you say it doesn't have to have nefarious implications But I'll play another clip which shows how it can be related to presenting that your community is special and should be able to read between the lines about your intentions, stuff that other people might miss. And it, it ends up sounding very close to QAnon. Anyway, let me play it and you'll hear what I mean.
2: And perhaps now you understand more about the title of the last Portal episode as a mildly coded message to my treasured audience.
0: Yeah, yeah, coded messages to your audience. That's not, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not necessary. I don't think that's necessary. I don't think you need to do
1: that. <laughs> yeah, I don't, it, it, it's encouraging your audience to read cryptic double meanings and everything you do. Like, well, why did he call the episode that? Was there, you know, Eric likes to drop breadcrumbs. It's it's cute. Like I say, it's on shit.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, maybe it's not apparent in this particular audio essay. But we've seen it before, where there's that kind of emotional manipulation occurring, where he'll get grumpy essentially with his community. Like he he loves them, but they've kind of let him down to some degree, you know. And um, those sorts of dynamics are just, you know, I, I don't like I don't like the way it reminds me of how cult leaders behave, essentially, where where they do things like that in order to sort of cement that that. The group dynamics in terms with, with, with them as the loving father, but, but sometimes a little bit stern.
1: Yes. And there's a reference made towards the end of the podcast to uh, potential community problems. So let, let me just play that.
2: But truth be told, there were also some other more minor issues I was having with COVID exposure and guests in the studio, loss of privacy, and some sad interactions with unstable people in my communities who seem to need psychological help. I may or may not choose to say something about these issues later.
1: So that's him talking about why he had to step back and not be as active online or releasing episodes like his audience would like. But but the interesting point is that last thing about unstable members in his community. Now, I, I don't know specifically what he's referencing there, but I can relate one event that I observed, which might be relevant. So a week or two back, I got a notification from someone that Eric was discussing us on his Discord, and I might want to pop on to hear his thoughts, right? And my technical inexpertise meant that I didn't actually hear any of that, although I got the gist from other people that he basically set up this division between low-quality criticism and high-quality criticism, right? And our podcast episode, which was brought up by someone in the audience, was presented as... Let me guess... (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah can can you
0: guess Matt (laughs) I I have I have an inkling yeah
1: yeah so we unfortunately we fell into the low quality bin but but be that as it may so sad for us but the point I wanted to mention was the conversation then went on to Eric's disappointment at one people recording some of his unfiltered thoughts on Discord and releasing them online. He talked about some experiences during his PhD and it had been leaked online. And this also led him to the issue of people essentially addressing criticisms to him about him not releasing papers or being compared to other pseudoscientists or these kind of things and how he considered these kind of criticisms such low quality, so illegitimate that if they were to continue coming up, he might need to withdraw, potentially cancel the portal and and, and definitely uh, remove his interaction with the community. And like you say, this was presented in a very because I love you so much and because i respect you so much i need you to do this for me police the community better and and you know i don't want the withdrawal but if you keep doing this you might make me and it struck me as like whoa incredibly pseudo cult leader manipulative and i'm not saying eric is a cult leader i mean that he's using that same emotionally manipulative tactics that mm. they use with their audience
0: yeah i mean there's a lot of parallels it, it's when, when you put it in with the context that the community is presented not like a like a hobbyist community like or people that are you know interested in some particular topic to to sort of discuss or whatever it's presented as a community with with the grand mission to save save america and western civilization and that people are invited to join who are who are concerned about the state of the world and and want to be part of a group that's going to somehow um fix these problems so it's 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 a very grand mission it's the kind of mission that cults generally tend to have you know um religious or not but um so you know like, like you i'm not saying it's a cult i'm just but i am saying <laughs> this sounds like the. i'm not saying it was aliens but it's aliens
1: there's there's cult like aspects or cult like psychology manipulations yeah. at play it, it, it's obvious there are
0: look it, it's it's a spe- it's a spectrum of cultishness and um and he's somewhere on it
1: yeah yeah so okay to give an example of the tone that we're talking about, the kind of followerly one. Let me just play one more clip, which is about how Eric failed to save th- his audience from the current situation.
2: Many of you flattered me by saying, where are you when we need you most, as if I had somehow abandoned you. And I am touched, but that is not where we are. I don't have your answers, and I am lost as well, so I have been trying to look past the election for months. I'm just being honest here
1: yes you can see that as a rare moment of contrition where eric is saying you know i'm i look i'm just as lost as the rest of you or it sounds a bit like you know i don't know like a religious leader telling his flock i I never left you i was still here i you know i was just choosing my moment to return
0: yeah yeah i know it's it may be it may be cynical of us but that kind of thing, where the leader says, "I don't, I don't have all the answers. You have to find the answers yourselves." Um, but I'm just a fellow traveller. But then, of course, then they are giving a whole bunch of answers in the next breath, <laughs> and, yeah. um, and
1: that's what happens here, of course. Yeah. Um. Well, so that's that's been pretty heavy start, and um, we haven't even got into the the conspiracy theory that he wants to thread here. So maybe to lighten it a little bit. One of the things that we touched on in the previous episode with Eric and Brett was their use of scientific jargon unnecessarily. That ends up making things more complicated when they're trying to they're supposed to be you know simplifying uh, a point. So there's a there's a beautiful example of this when Eric was explaining why Sam Harris shouldn't focus on criticizing Trump. And this was at a dinner party they were having after the 2016 election.
2: I've studied Trump's style and it's based around deliberate ambiguities that left and right can be counted upon to hear as meaning different things. If Trump makes N nested, ambiguous statements in a minute, he will create a minimum of two to the N legs of the decision tree that must be considered given your strategy. He will thus be able to force you and the rest of the unsuspecting United States public intellectuals to waste much of your intellectual life for four to eight years, picking up after him.
0: Oh, ah, yeah. And yeah, that's just that's a hell of a way to put it, isn't it? Uh, I, I I do love these. I love the extraordinarily, <laughs> extraordinarily um, abstracted technical uh, analogies that are meant to illustrate a point. Uh, but obviously, are really just there to just baffle people and remind them that they're listening to someone who's far smarter than they are. Yeah. So well, n nested, n nested, n nested. Now. What what does that mean exactly? Well, isn't he
1: just talking about a, like a recursive, you know, unspecified yeah. number leads to two more interpretations and then you need to debunk those two interpret? Like it sounds like a recursive loop, but even me explaining this sounds like it's making it more complicated to just say, yes, Trump says lots of stupid stuff and it'll take too long to... all of them because there's too many interpretations
0: yeah trump certainly does say ambiguous things and things that could be interpreted in one of two ways it's it's like a it's like a martin bailey type technique that works pretty well but why n nested yes you're quite right about it being a recursive kind of thing and if you have a recursive decision tree where you have two two decision points on each um, level of the tree then yes you'll end up with two to the power of n things but is it really nested chris like, like, how is it nested? I don't see that. Like, it's a stupid analogy. Apart from being technical and unnecessary, it's not even right. <laughs> like, like, I'm sorry, Matt. Yes, go on.
1: No, no, but this is what happens because, like, when you start to try, you know, it happened with the alchemical lemon with me with Jordan Peterson, but it seems to happen more often with you with when people make statistic references that the metaphorical nature. Is the retreat, you know, if somebody was to push that, like, oh no, no, he's just he's making a reference like this. But if you try to drill down the things, it often starts to crumble. And I, on the other other hand, ma or on the other hand Eric is a mathematician, so maybe he's yeah. making some obscure point that we genuinely just don't get. But I mean, the basic point is not hard to get, even if you don't
0: know the maths. You don't need the maths to get the point. Well, the the, the maths is very simple. Like this, the the, the idea is, is that there's there's one of two interpretations of of Trump's utterance, but then he's saying that the interpretations also have two interpretations, and then yeah. those interpretations have more. I don't. That's not. <laughs> I don't think yeah, I, I agree.
1: But I, I think that's the least of the problems of this episode. So, like, If that's upset, you just hold on. Uh, oh, yeah. And one other thing was, so as well as making these unhelpful analogies, the other thing is to make references, right? Sometimes obscure references, but at least intellectual references to illustrate a fairly straightforward point. So, so here's a random reference drop to some psychology studies.
2: I once again suspected that almost everybody who is not sufficiently disagreeable to be considered Milgram negative, Ash negative, and Zimbardo negative, according to the three famous psychology experiments.
1: Now, look, I'm not saying Zimbardo, Ash, and Milgram are obscure knowledge hidden in the annals of psychology. They are, however, specialized language, right? And if you don't explain it it's just a way that makes you look informed that your audience needs to look up what that reference is but those are not deep experiments and and in general respects there's big questions about at least two of them we don't need to get into the replication crisis or the you know revision of all that stuff but it's just it's just the random drop of names yeah
0: random, random random name dropping but the other thing about it I don't get is, what is, like, for example, Zimbardo negative? I know about Zimbardo's uh, experiments and the, the character, but what does Zimbardo negative mean?
1: This is my best go at He's saying, you know, Zimbardo h- highlighted how some people, when they're put into a specific situation, uh, start to take on characteristics, especially, you know, oppressive characteristics when they're in a position of authority. So he's saying people that would respond negatively to that situation would refuse to oppress people. That's Zimbardo negative. And the, the same goes
0: for right. Milgram and Ash. Right. But these are these are phrases he just invented. Like that, that's not... No, a, yeah,
1: that's not Like point. calling
0: someone Zimbardo negative is not something that, no. <laughs> that anyone else has ever... That's not a phrase that anyone else has ever used. I just had to Google <laughs> yeah. it just to check. <laughs> Ed. no <laughs> but this is the appeal of eric
1: right it's so it's not nonsensical it's a meaningful thing to say and if you're charitable you can just be say well look th- that's just how his mind works he's just but you have to realize he wrote this down the, he knows presumably that there are members of his audience who are not f- familiar with psychologists but he he would undoubtedly present it as he has enough faith that his audience will look up the references and get it the, if they if they care enough about the point. But I I think you have to factor in there that a lot of it is just to demonstrate the depth of knowledge and intelligence of Eric as a guru.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's like, he's like an anti-Richard Feynman. You know, you know, Feynman, the famous physicist who was yeah. who was <laughs> extremely good at at explaining you know, quite abstract and complicated ideas in, in in a concrete way that people could grasp. He's just the opposite. He he takes quite basic ideas and then turns them into something very technical and abstract to make them difficult yeah, to grasp. Yeah, he's a Feynman negative. Yeah. He's- He's he's funnier negative. He's fun he's a funnier negative. I should have just said that. I shouldn't have explained it. That's where I went wrong. I should have just. Said. This is why we are the
1: you know obscure podcast for internet denizens. And Eric is uh, the <laughs> Apple podcast legend. He is. We need to just make references with no explanation. <laughs>
0: Oh, uh, yes, we should indeed. All right, all right, that's good. All right, we've done that to death. Um, but yeah, I I do I do treasure these analogies. Um, they drive me out. Like
1: I'm, uh, I'm I'm just gonna tell you, we haven't done it to death. There's much more. <laughs> I, I'm gonna skip over them. And again, just to tease you even more, before we get to the the major conspiracies, our listeners as well, just wait, just wait. We'll get to the goods. There's there's one other thing that I think it's worth mentioning in passing. So a significant portion of this segment is Eric giving his political analysis about who he voted for, didn't vote for, how both sides are terrible.
2: So stay safe out there. You don't have to swing for the fences on this election because quite frankly, both of these are terrible options.
1: Whether you agree or disagree with Eric's analysis or think it's stupid, you know, that's an option. I don't really take an issue with him outlining his political views. That's that's fine, right? That's a reasonable thing for somebody to do. So we're not going to spend much time focused on the politics stuff that he outlines, except there's one thing that he argues, which is really prevalent at the minute amongst the anti-social justice warrior or intellectual dark web about why he doesn't criticize Trump so much. Let's hear him explain it.
2: I said I will make one or more clear statements that Donald Trump represents an existential risk to the fabric of the United States and that I expect he will use his freedom as an outsider to do a combination of both very good and very bad things. But I'm not going to let him run my intellectual life every day on his truly ingenious brain farts. I will then focus my energy and attempt to hold my own party, the Democrats, intellectually accountable so that we can win with someone we can believe in. Re-
0: reaction, Matt. Uh, well, one thing that struck me is how whenever he talks about Trump or the right, he, he there's always this sort of double double talk. For instance, when he he talks about his Trump's utterances as brain farts, but also calls them uh, ingenious. Um, you know, says he'll expect him to do a bunch of very bad stuff, but also a bunch of very good stuff. So you know, I think he appreciates his audience is is a mixture of pro and anti Trump people, and um, you can kind of read it either way
1: yeah i noticed that as well and those kind of caveats don't come with democrats or whenever he's discussing the left except for carving out the space for him and his friends but it it is a notable distinction that it's very rare to see harsh criticism of the right without caveats about oh trump will do very good things as well which really good things i wonder
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, um...
1: I agree. There's not much else to be said there. I just wanted to flag it because it, you know it's in the atmosphere at the minute with James Lindsay's endorsement of Trump, and today actually, various figures who are critical of social justice warriors or critical theory on the left, yeah. also writing a joint article to respond to people who would advocate for voting for Trump, including Steven Pinker yeah. and uh, Helen Pluck-Rose. So yeah, this this kind of debate is in the, the ecosphere at the minute. So I, I thought we're flagging up.
0: Yeah, so I think uh, the context here is they've, they've come out with pretty pretty anti, anti-Biden, you know, quasi-pro-Trump type statements. Uh, you know, I guess doing what a lot of the critics of the IDW accused them of, I thought unfairly, uh, for a long time, and I uh, was quite glad to see um, the uh, pretty long list of names who are IDW or IDW adjacent to really distance themselves from from those statements.
1: All right, well, Matt, I've been. I think we've built up enough time now to get to the the real meat of this audio essay and. And what just what is it that connected all those disparate topics that Eric mentioned at the introduction? So let's start with Eric's issue with the term fake news.
2: Back in November of 2016, I started commenting on the idea that the quote fake news, close quote panic was not authentic. That it was likely constructed in November of 2016 as a placeholder to be used by institutions stunned by the results and rocked in their faith that they could broadly control every election to make sure that both candidates were broadly acceptable to the institutional class with no Ralph Nader's, Ron Paul's, Ross Perot's or Bernie Sanders to worry about.
0: Yeah. So um, that is uh, such bullshit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's good I analysis, mean, right? We can wrap it up there.
0: <laughs> I mean, seriously. So, he's saying let's let's try to um with, with okay, let's try to step back and just repeat what he's saying clearly. He's saying that fake news isn't real, that it's a beat up by the institutions and it's it's them basically describing narratives that they can't control yeah
1: yes so let me play one more clip that might help clarify exactly what he's saying
2: recall that i don't believe that fake news was an authentic narrative in november of 2016 so what was it then well i don't know But if I had to guess, I would say that there was probably a meeting somewhere around early November of 2016, where it was decided that the United States needed a narrative to buy time for its aggrieved institutions so that the 2020 election could be fixed to the greatest extent possible.
0: Yeah. So I'd like to return to my earlier point about this being Mm -hmm. bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because, I mean, okay, first of all, that is not an authentic narrative. Well, everyone... Any reasonable person would agree that there is an awful lot of fake news about. Yeah, um, there's an awful lot of lying and just what 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 was the phrase that uh, Trump's advisor gave it? Alternative facts. It is a thing. You cannot say that it didn't really exist and that it was just a narrative that was invented by the media companies. I mean, anyone who paid attention to what someone like Donald Trump was saying could Tell that he was lying repeatedly, and he further goes on to say that there's a meeting among these institutions—a secret meeting—a secret meeting amongst these institutions to come up with this narrative to give them more time to fix the election. It's it's just a, just a nonsensical conspiracy theory, and the evidence that he's using to support the conspiracy theory just doesn't even stack up. It obviously doesn't stack up against anyone who's even turned on their TV or looked at the internet.
1: Well, you say that, Matt, but before I I offer my thoughts, I will allow Eric to respond once more to you, providing what he considers the best evidence for his theory.
2: Many of you are no doubt thinking, I remember everyone talking about fake news all during the election. Isn't that interesting? Because that is not what happened at all. That's a fake memory, and it's not even yours. In fact, as late as the end of October of 2016, almost no one was talking much about fake news. In fact, the concept didn't really spike until after Trump's victory. It was not until the week of Sunday, November 13th, 2016, that the hypnotic and invariant phrase, fake news, exploded and went from being an extremely minor news story to the supposedly settled explanation for everything that had caught the New York Times, the Democratic Party, and the heavily anti-Trump tech giants measuring the Oval Office drapes while about to lose the race of a lifetime.
0: Okay. I think I'm too annoyed to comment, so I think you should comment (laughs) on
1: this. So I, I, I... agree with pretty much everything that you said, but Eric's argument boils down to, it looks to me that he's done a thing like a, what do you call it? Like Google trends, where you can see how often the term is referenced and you can, you know, see a graph of when it spikes and that he thinks he's discovered this interesting pattern that fake news was not a term used that much in the run-up to the election. It only became a commonly searched term after, right, after Trump's inauguration and there's a couple of things about this. It's possible that that's true, that the, the word was not searched that much until after the election and if that occurred, it's likely because Trump used the word specifically to refer to the media and started using the word repeatedly and then it became something that people looked up. Now Because you have to remember that Trump pivoted after the election where his main enemy had been Hillary and to a lesser extent the media, but not really fixated on that. It was after the election that he pivoted to heavily focus on the media as the new enemy, the new boogeyman to go to. So the issue here is Eric is mistaking that term for discussion of the general concept of Fake news, disinformation, the manipulation of stories by people with other agendas. And you don't need the term fake news for that, right? The term did exist. It pre-existed that. But it doesn't matter at all if it wasn't used commonly in articles prior to the election. Because what is true is that people were constantly talking about Trump's tendency to promote unreliable sources to promote conspiracies, and Russian disinformation campaigns running. It wasn't an invented memory that that was a narrative of the election or common talking point.
0: Mm. No, I mean, you know, people have been talking about biased media reporting for, for decades. You know, Fox News has been criticized for it for a long time before Trump came on the scene. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I completely agree with you. One is mistaking, first of all, the actual phrase for the concept that people might have of, of disinformation or, or lying or propaganda or, or media manipulation or whatever. But the other thing too is that Trump was the one who brought it back into popularity. Yeah. So is he part of the institutional um, you know, cabal that got together to introduce this concept Slash phrase <laughs> into the public consciousness in order to fix the election. That doesn't make sense. Is Trump part of the cabal? Chris, that's what I need to know.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of it that doesn't make sense because Trump is the nominee, and Eric's talking about Trump not being part of the system and how the system would like calibrate to, you know, install somebody who's bland and acceptable. But if that's the case, Trump should have been impeached, and Mike Pence should have been the new president like unless the right are completely not in these conspiracies but you know whenever eric's trying to offer the false equivalence of both the duopoly they're they're both equally as bad he does include the right but but here it seems the right and the fact that trump is the nominee in 2020 still is is just sidestepped
0: yeah so there's an alternative explanation for this which is that trump lies to an extraordinary degree, even though politicians have, have always been flexible with the truth and you know media outlets have always um, had an editorial line or be biased in one direction or another, the far simpler explanation is that Trump, first of all, started lying an awful lot more than any other politician. Two, as you said, he basically set himself up against the, the mainstream media as his number one enemy. And of course, they were doing fact-checking and calling him out on his various lies, and him and his office preferred his alternative facts. So his big thing came about, well, you can't trust anything that, that anyone else is saying about me. It's all fake news. And the obvious fact of the matter is that Trump is the one who popularized it, and, and he's fun- fundamentally the reason why it's entered the sort of mainstream consciousness. That's, that's a far simpler.
1: <laughs> and that's why it's not appealing. Because it's a simple, straightforward account that the media, in large respect, were responding to Trump and then trying to also distinguish fake news is a thing, but Trump is calling everything fake news. So what's real fake news? And, you know, like that would inevitably end up with the term being used more in articles and people discussing what the definitions and such are. And and it being abused as a, a concept.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I got to say here, um, you know, Eric, he reminds me of the last guy we covered, J.P. Sears, who's also got a thing against fact checkers and fake news or accusations of fake news. And and for exactly the same reason, which is if you love conspiracy theories and you, you don't want to be fact checked or you don't want to be called to account, then you invent this Conspiracy theories are all about discrediting the authoritative sources of information, discrediting any source of information apart from people who are pushing the conspiracy theory.
2: I don't hate having actual facts checked by true fact checkers, although the words actual and true are doing a lot of heavy lifting in the sentence.
0: And, you know, Trump did that in his very obvious, simple way. And yeah, Weinstein's doing it as well. So it's a, it's a classic conspiracy
2: theory maneuver.
1: Yeah, so there's a clip that illustrates how the concept of fake news would be used to attack free speech.
2: And I believe that fake news was likely the placeholder that had been settled upon. That would be the origin of the gradual changes in terms of service across Twitter, Facebook and Google, and how the structural changes were coordinated that would gradually erode all protections for free speech across the platforms.
1: That, that clip in particular, linking it to terms and service changes will prompt one of the later stages of this conspiracy. But OK, so I think we've covered the first pillar of the conspiracy. There was an actual secret meeting, a, a cabal of media elites and institutional insiders who decided that the population needed to be manipulated in time for the next election for them to introduce the candidate that they could control. It's the bloody Manchurian candidate. It's amazing.
0: I know. And they were concerned about the truth coming out. So invented this term, fake news, and somehow funnel it into Trump's brain, I suppose, in order to use that as a cover for suppressing more truthful narratives that are coming from independent sources, like, for instance, Eric. <laughs> yeah. yeah? Yeah.
1: Okay. And that will become important later when we get the how the intellectual dark web are involved in this. But before that... We, we take a segue into Jean Seberg and how she, a famous actor, uh, relates to all of this and what Eric is talking about. So, so let's hear Eric explain it.
2: The idea of the U.S. deep state's use of mainstream media to destroy lawful citizens' lives and sanity simply for political beliefs is not a conspiracy theory. It is in fact a 100% certain conspiracy fact that for some odd reason isn't taught much in U.S. high school.
1: Okay, so this is him explaining that Gene Seberg, who was a, a famous actress, was targeted by the FBI or CIA, can't remember which one now, but with rumors being put into the media to discredit her and it led to her eventual suicide. And it's, it's a tragic story. It's an example of... Well-documented example that the intelligence agencies do, you know, they do have nefarious programs. They're not above trying to influence media. But, but here's the thing, these examples like Gene Seberg or Watergate, right? Conspiracies exist. So how can you man with your head in the sand, criticize me for advancing ideas when we have documented cases of the kind of thing I'm explaining. And the problem with that reasoning is every single conspiracy theorist uses that argument. David Icke uses it. Alex Jones uses it. All of them use it. They point to real conspiracies and say, look, real conspiracies exist. Ergo, the conspiracies I'm invoking are just as plausible as any other explanation. And it's the ergo bit which is the problem. (laughs) Because no one is saying real conspiracies don't exist. Yeah. The issue is the conspiracy that is being alleged is often flimsy, badly supported, and has terrible logic.
0: Yeah, we've seen we've, we've seen this from these guys before, like um, in some of the earlier episodes. It's analogous to the idea that there are undiscovered geniuses out there. So therefore, it could well be that uh, Brett Weinstein is one of them. And the problem, which you pointed out at the time, I think, was that Yes, there are discovered geniuses out there who have been neglected by the mainstream. But the problem is for every one of them, there's a thousand delusional fools. Yeah. And, and the same thing is true of conspiracy theories. For every conspiracy theory that's actually real, there's an untold number of nonsensical ones. So you absolutely cannot use this sort of existence theorem, existence proof uh, of several of them being true as any kind of support for a conspiracy theory that you just dreamt up.
1: Yeah. And in good Eric fashion, he wants to coin a neologism, le, neolog, neologism, ne- neologism, neologism, <laughs> I don't know. Ne- neologism, a neologism, one of them to codify this phenomenon that he's talking about.
2: When this sport of personal reputational destruction is coordinated by members of the complex formed by institutional media, the intelligence community, the political parties, political consultants, finance, tech, and the academy. I call it seaberging to remind us of just how real the threat is to all who have idiosyncratic politics, but who have done nothing legally wrong.
0: Yeah, the complex, Chris, the complex, the complex of... Everybody, it's all connected. Cue up that meme with <laughs> the, the "It's always sunny in Philadelphia" with the guy with the with with the pinboard, you know, and the the string connecting all of the organizations. Yeah,
1: yeah, and look, just to be clear, Eric then goes on to mention the Data and Society report, which was a report made by Rebecca Lewis that looked at alternative influence networks. She basically did a deep dive on the. YouTube contrarian space and looked at the connections between them and their regular appearances on each other's shows and promoting each other to, to different audiences and looking, you know, Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris and a lot of the intellectual dark web people were there. And they really didn't like it because they considered it a paradigmatic example of guilt by association.
2: That's where data and society and its crazy guilt by association minus any methodology technique appeared. In essence, the four-year battle plan was to figure out how to use the fake news meme to gain greater narrative control of the news.
1: Yeah, so I, I mentioned that because they really didn't like that report. And they focused on this diagram that showed connections, kind of the pinboard meme was used often in response to it. But if you actually read the report, it was a very good and nuanced discussion of the way that alternative communities interact and form around these kind of guru characters mm. online. But the point is, that's just a report from a think tank that was done by one researcher who had become like super vilified by the IDW. But, but here it's weaved into, this was a part of that grand scheme to discredit the alternative voices speaking truth mm-hmm. to power. This this is part of the, you know, fake news conspiracy consortium. They somehow commissioned this report or led to its creation. But the reality is that was just a researcher doing a report on this emerging phenomenon on YouTube. There isn't a grand conspiracy behind it. That and society does reports on those kind of topics. Yeah. That's what it exists to yeah.
0: do. I mean, look, it's just a real red flag when somebody lists off all of these things, you know, the mainstream media, um, the tech companies, uh, the FBI, the, the the politicians, you know, and there's this huge list of – but it's basically everybody, right? And whenever whenever a conspiracy theory starts doing that, it's just clearly a conspiracy theory basically. That, that, like that there are conspiracies, as you say. There's, like, say, price fixing. Some some rich people or companies will get together and organize something, or or an organization, a secret service organization, like the FBI, you know, does do secret things. That's very different. Like that's the thing. They keep it secret, right? <laughs> you can't you can't bring in the mainstream media and all tech company and tech companies and all politicians and FBI and all these. You know, it's not going to be a secret for very long. Like, we, we know about the Gene Seberg thing, and, and that was done in-house, presumably, as secretly as they could do it. I mean, th- these conspiratorial narratives where they bring in all of these vague and very broad institutions and groups. The the only group we left off was the Jews, I suppose. But yeah. so that's understandable.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, given the years one. But... Uh, yeah. <laughs> so the next wing of this, which has already been teed up, is that the... Intellectual dark web, Eric and his friends in particular, are part of the people that this conspiracy consortium of the media and and all those institutions need to control. So it, it isn't just they sought to control the political narrative. No, they needed to target him and Joe Rogan and his brother and so on. So let's hear him issuing a warning to the intellectual dark web.
2: In particular, I warned people associated with the intellectual dark web that they should be very careful not to lose their accounts. In the time since, we have seen new levels of bizarre behavior on Twitter and Facebook, which seem to be catching up to Google in terms of naked attempts to manipulate the national conversation.
1: Yeah, so this is, you know, part of manipulating the conversation, but why would they be targeting random podcasts? So let's let's hear that because it's it's hard to exaggerate. <laughs> the level of self-importance attached to podcasts. Uh, here we go.
2: We all opined often and often better than the professional commentariat at that. And long-form podcasting, as led by the popular Joe Rogan, became seen as the great embarrassment and threat to mainstream legacy media. People dying to be treated like adults with long attention spans dropped NPR, and the New York Times is home to the 1619 Project, which its leader openly admitted was attempting to get America to riot, and flocked to podcasts hours in length to listen to Snowden or Bernie Sanders on Joe Rogan, and there was no plan to stop this that was working when they finally realized just how powerful these podcasts are.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so this 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 this, this theme this theme of paranoia and self-importance, right? Where, yeah. where they, uh, see themselves as absolutely instrumental in, in, um, affecting change at a national level. And therefore the, the the authorities and and everyone is is out to get them. It it reminds me of that uh, of the Japanese cult. You, you probably would know about that, that the Om Shinrikyo. Om Shinrikyo. Now, they were also extraordinarily paranoid and self-important, weren't they?
1: Yes, they did a campaign to become elected, uh, I think to be Prime Minister for Asahara Shoko, the guru leader of that group. And and they campaigned seriously. I mean, they campaigned seriously with like insane things about you know people with like uh like ganesh masks and stuff um but they they thought that they had a chance to be elected and it was when they were completely rejected by the public that they then switched to the self-destructive view that that eventually led to the sarin gas attack on the tokyo underground so to be clear, we're not saying that Eric is going to organize <laughs> a gas attack on the New York subway, but more no. that the the belief that you know they are a threat to the political institutions and that you know the podcasts are the thing that's going to change the very fabric of politics and society is is insane. Like Matt, we have we have a small podcast, granted, but. You know, I didn't realize we had grasped such a powerful tool by doing long form podcasts on obscure topics. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, this that self-importance and the and the paranoia are like two sides of the same coin because when there's some some random thing happens or you 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 see things through this lens where uh, you know the actions or whatever of of an organization like YouTube is, is seen as as all designed around around you and your group. Yeah, and it, it's it's partly a phenomenon that we see on um, on on Twitter with this this thing where these commentators just get too online and they just get too wrapped up in their own little world and they think that the medium and their discourse or whatever that they're having is is having a far greater importance in the broader society than it actually does
1: yeah and that like this relates to a pattern that you see with both brett and eric that they interpret anything to do with like technical difficulties or you know some issue with tweeting something as like targeted suppression when brett has a tweet that he doesn't think gets enough interaction he'll often at jack dorsey and say jack could would you mind like telling your people to stop putting their fingers on the scale <laughs> like it's it's impressive for yeah. brett has interpreted interference with his camera connections in his house as potentially targeted interference from some outside source that wants to disrupt his podcast. And then eventually linked it up to radiation released by the forest fires from Fukushima, which is also outlandish. But
0: (laughs) at least it's not paranoid. (laughs) Just outlandish.
1: (laughs) At least it's not specific to him. So hold on. Here's a clip talking about how social media platforms change their terms and service to target heterodox podcasters.
2: So they figured out that we needed the platforms in part to reach each other and proceeded to change the platform rules over and over again to make them vague, illogical, ideological, inconsistent, and actually impossible to understand.
1: So, so yeah. Yeah. The, The one thing is that the terms and conditions in social media sites are often vague and complicated and the reasons for people being banned or whatever are not always transparent. And there's, there's plenty of legitimate things to criticize there. But what I see very few people in these spaces take account of is the complexity and the amount of knife edge walking that platforms are doing in trying to moderate millions, if not billions, of posts and content every day. It's inevitable that they have labyrinth and Byzantine terms and conditions, and that they're applied badly or inconsistently, and that we we can criticize them for that. But thinking that that was made specifically mm. for you and your community and friends, that's
0: yeah. The, that's yeah. Or, 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 or thinking, I or think it was made to, to to target free speech or manipulate elections or something like that. It's, it's just really absurd. Like, of, of course, the terms and conditions are completely obscure and ridiculous. I mean, if, if you get a mobile phone contract, you, the terms and conditions will be ridiculous. They're always ridiculous and vague. When it comes to social media everyone should know this that's you know um social media is free google is free it doesn't cost you anything to actually use this so it's been said before that you know in in a real sense the people who use it like us these platforms are not the clients yeah the the clients are whoever is paying them (laughs) advertising revenue and stuff like that so so they serve i don't want to call them clients they serve (laughs) headmasters yeah yeah like millions of people like us right but of course, they don't have high levels of customer service. They use algorithms and things like that to call centers in some some other country or whatever, and it's all completely arbitrary and high handed. And there's heaps of people treated sort of unfairly in e-commerce. But you don't need a conspiracy theory to explain it. It's just that's how the markets work in this case. You're not going to be treated particularly well. And you know, we could that's something else to talk about if if one wanted to, but yeah you get what you pay for and the service is always going to be very bad in terms of content moderation and things like that like like you chris i'm somewhat sympathetic despite all that um uh, because as you say they are walking a knife edge on one hand they never really wanted to be in the business of, of of content moderation they 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 argued that um but they their hands were forced because there's always something extreme enough that people could post that you know everyone acknowledges has to be taken down, so where do you draw that line and Unfortunately, the job was left up to them so yeah yeah, I think
1: the one of the legitimate criticisms that people bring up about tech platforms is that they should have foresaw this, and that they should be quicker to react, like when Facebook is helping to promote the potential genocide of the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar because and they don't have moderators who speak Burmese this is you know it's a multi-billion tech platform they should be able to consider that if they're going to open up in Burma or Myanmar whichever you want to put it but that like so I'm not saying there's no there's no grounds to criticize the platforms for their moderation policies or how they're enforced I do think they're not enforced particularly consistently but it's just this constant assumption that that is all gay, top-down instruction to like take these specific kind of voices out of the public conversation,
0: um, at the behest of the this this complex of of mainstream media, FBI, and powerful people, powerful shadowy organizations. You know,
1: yeah, yeah. They're not talking about you know. Yes, the the social media platforms. Some of them recently purged QAnon accounts, but how many years did that take? And That was a very public example, right? You know, Alex Jones being kicked off Facebook. He was pumping out disinformation and stuff for years. He still regularly appears on like, you know, he just recently has reappeared on Joe Rogan's show.
0: And, and 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 in fact when you look at those cases of them of them banning someone like Alex Jones like they they did it in response to a public outcry like their reasons were quite obvious because a lot of people not some secret cabal but just just normal people were objecting to this you know saying hey your platform is being used as a way to distribute stuff that's actually leading to People getting harassed and putting people in danger. Like there's legitimate reasons. You don't need to construct a conspiracy to explain why uh, Alex Jones got banned. I, I think the response
1: to that would be that the the public outcry, these kind of outrage campaigns, mean that the tech platforms are responsive to cancel culture, like the the woke outrage, and to a certain extent that is true that you know if attention gets put on a particular issue or person, you know there is the potential that they could end up getting banned but like sure
0: but it's not a conspiracy Can- cancel culture isn't a conspiracy it's something it's different yeah. it's
1: all it's on the open and also you have to look at the amount of truly horrendous accounts which still operate with impunity right they all allege suppression and whatnot but most of them still have, voices on the platform like alex jones is off twitter paul joseph watson is still there happily tweeting away every day you know there there's plenty of people who are making their living on these platforms spending their time claiming the platform is censoring them like JP jpc
0: yeah like so if if their mission the mission of this cabal with their with their idea of spreading this this meme of fake news in order to control the narrative and fix the election. I mean, they're doing a really bad job of it because last time I checked, there was an awful lot of counter-mainstream narratives available on the internet. Yeah. There's <laughs> a lot of them out there.
1: Like Trump is consistently the most popular content on YouTube or Facebook's most popular articles sent around, or, you know, often Shapiro and all these kind of things. So like this supposed domination of the social media sphere, by the left, that completely excludes any other voices. It isn't based on reality when you look at the metrics of what's being shared and what's popular. It collapses. but I think we've we've probably sidetracked on to that more general discussion, but it, it's going to be a recurring topic anyway. But they, so this leads us to the last pillar, or the last segment of the snake or whatever the hell you want to call it, of the grand conspiratorial vision of Eric, and this relates to Article 58 of the Soviet Union and Brett Weinstein's banning, temporary banning from Facebook.
2: Which brings us to Article 58 of the Soviet-era Russian Penal Code, which introduced the concept of enemy of the workers and counter-revolutionary activities as the major crime. You see, Article 58 was a law where everyone was guilty, but not everyone was prosecuted.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess we should go on and see where he's going with this. Yeah, so here we go.
2: And sure enough, just like with Article 58 in the show trials, the tech platforms treat trust and safety as a star chamber where you can be accused without being told what you did wrong and tried in absentia.
0: Okay, so so he's he's, he's equating the Soviet-era trials for, for um, counter-revolutionary behavior and so on where, where you would get executed or sent to Siberia and probably die there, and so on, to, what, having your account suspended from Twitter, yeah? That's... Yes, Matt.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I think you are correct. That is the comparison that he's drawing there. There might be an element of catastrophizing
0: mm. at play.
1: I'm God. I'm not sure. But... Yeah, it could, be. It could <laughs> be.
0: I mean, I find myself at a loss sometimes with these review things because how many different ways can you say that something is just stupid because I think mean, I hope for I think most people listening would just see that self-evidently a silly comparison, but it's kind of our job to to spell it out and say explicitly why that's a silly comparison. And I feel uh, I feel a bit silly for doing so, but it's a difficult job. But we can we can do it, can't we? Yes.
1: No, I yeah I think you're underestimating how many people will find that argument compelling. I mean this this segment was promoted by Joe Rogan and various other people as like. If you want to really understand what's happening in the modern era, listen to Eric's new intro section, right? So right. I, I think you're giving too much credit to people. But <laughs> so, okay, how this relates to Brett is that on Twitter, Brett had not his account, but the Unity 2020 campaign account, which was his political campaign to elect two candidates outside the duopoly instead of Biden or Trump as the president for the 2020 election. And that account ended up being banned after a month or so. And Eric explains the banning vastly.
2: It appeared that the thought of Americans coming together and burying their hatchets was seen as a serious offense, which the usually forward-thinking CEO Jack Dorsey himself could not face for reasons that remain utterly opaque.
1: Okay, so the account was banned. and. Eric, at an other point, explains that there was no reasons given for why.
2: Very quickly, the Articles of Unity account that they had set up on Twitter was suspended without explanation.
1: I would say that's not true. Because I've listened to Brett's content, and he has mentioned reasons. So he's mentioned accusations. Whether he received them afterwards from independent sources at Twitter, or he received them when the account was being banned. I'm not sure, but the reasons cited, based on what he said, efforts to manipulate hashtags and the use of satellite accounts, right? Which I I believe means accounts which just exist to promote your content and are coordinated to pump your message out, right? Something political campaigns do generally do, but which also can get banned on Twitter, right? As non-genuine accounts. Now, Brett has explained that he did an investigation and that his volunteers, or whoever had the keys to the account, didn't do this. So the accusation is false. But whether you believe that or not, is entirely up to how much you trust Brett's ability to do investigations into that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, but, but the point that you're making is that what he said before is not consistent with what he said here. Well, What he said here, he said they, they banned it because they were afraid that there might be a unifying positive message for America, and they couldn't have that. Whereas, in actual fact, they did give reasons, though he disagrees with them, they did give reasons for the banning. And keeping in mind what we said before, which is that a lot of the time, banning or suspending or whatever on these platforms is pretty high-handed and arbitrary. So, you know, a lot of people get banned for reasons that are not super fair uh, or or might be a little bit harsh, but that doesn't mean that his preferred explanation, that this institutional cabal was, was afraid of the positive unifying message for America... That doesn't mean that that explanation is the preferred one.
1: No. And again, it probably should go without saying, but Brett's campaign was not a threat to the duopoly. None of his candidates were on the ballot in any state. His plan to get access involved the Libertarians and the Green parties giving up their ballot access to his much less popular campaign. And the two candidates he'd selected from a online voter was Tulsi Gabbard, the Democrat, and Dan Crenshaw, the Republican, both of whom have endorsed their party's candidates and did not agree to run.
0: Yeah. So so even if you accept that there is this institutional cabal and that Twitter is part of it, then there'd be absolutely no need for them to even notice the existence of this Unity 2020 thing because it is completely irrelevant to the election outcome,
1: it's a, it was like a 40k account, I think. So I think Twitter has bigger concerns in this election cycle than what Brett Weinstein is doing. But in any in any case, the likelihood of that campaign working or or proving threatening enough that it needed to be shut down. Is taken as the kind of default explanation. And what what also happened is round about this time, Brett's account got noticed by a bunch of the Russian bot or you know, the accounts that basically exist to promote anti Biden or anti American information. And, and the Unity 2020 stuff started getting retweeted by all those accounts. Then the people who watch those accounts noticed that. And one of them was like, okay, everybody mass flag this account. Unity 2020 is, uh, you know, a Russian campaign or whatever. And like, I think they mistook it for a Russian disinformation campaign Uh. or whatever the case. There were like hundreds of responses saying, okay, I flagged it. I flagged it. So what probably happened is Twitter got massively flagged. And after the 2016 campaign, they have like an itchy trigger finger when it comes to dealing with potential disinformation accounts. And they probably saw that the candidates have not endorsed it. Or like, I don't know the reason, but there's much more mundane explanations than the duopoly saw the real threat and needed to stamp it out. And Jack
0: Dorsey is involved personally. Yeah, no, I think that, I think your explanation sounds very, very plausible. Especially as a lot of these, um, you know, um, policing that, these platforms do is is highly automated and just just run by run by statistical comparisons so that kind of with that kind of thing happening with with attention from the the various russian or otherwise sponsored foreign accounts who are naturally attracted to any flaky political stuff because it's it's it, it's it's inherently an opportunity for destabilization yeah, you could see it could quite easily happen. And it may be quite completely unfair, you know, completely unfair. It's the, the, um, the, the 2020 campaign was, was uh, the innocent victim of Twitter algorithms being applied to, you know, dodgy activity that there wasn't. But yeah, there's so many other explanations that are so much more plausible, basically, n- none of which she would consider.
1: And I, I actually, I suspect that like it shouldn't have been banned, the account. And I don't think it would have made like any significant difference to the election outcome. So that isn't the issue. It's just the explanation. So that that's the background. But what happened recently, which made Eric certain that this is a coordinated campaign, is that Brett also had his personal Facebook account permanently banned and received a notification that this decision had been reviewed and was irreversible. Now, it has subsequently been reversed for the following reason. Uh, so let Eric explain.
2: After a public outcry from Joe Lonsdale, Tulsi Gabbard, myself, and others, and some back-channel communication to Facebook board members, the account was mysteriously opened again with a claim that it had merely been flagged by a system.
1: Right. So, counter to the image that Brett and Eric are kept outside of the channels of power and are just, you know, constantly being repressed, instead, they were able to get special treatment and have an account looked at because eric works for a board member of facebook they have prominent politicians who like them and pay attention to them like tulsi gabbard so far from being silenced by the powers that be their influential friends were able to get a decision reversed
0: yeah that's right yeah, it it reminds me a little bit of um, his behavior when submitting these articles to to Nature and so on, which he would uh, attach these these recommendations from uh, influential people, and yet at the same time, when it was declined, he would see it as this uh, this secret network of influential people blocking them out. So in, in both cases, it's it's like well, first of all, you're doing things and and have connections that. The rest of us don't have if somebody banned our accounts we wouldn't have anyone to call um, and just like if we were submitting to nature we wouldn't be attaching a letter of recommendation from some prestigious name in the field saying oh you, you really should accept this paper yet he paradoxically has those connections uses those connections but also claims that the the institutions are um are, are suppressing him it's uh, it doesn't make sense
1: yeah, and and on the specific issue of the like Facebook banning, it is a weird thing, right? He got banned, he claimed he didn't use the account in the months preceding, and the notification, it said a thing that it had been reviewed, which is apparently something that only happens upon request, and yet the explanation given by the Facebook employee said it was a system error. It was basically an algorithm error. Now, I can see why people would have doubts about that explanation. But on the other hand, if this was a conspiracy, it's a terrible, terrible one. Because what happens is they banned Brett's account. They should have surely factored into that, that he would mention this publicly. As soon as he mentions it publicly, a random Facebook employee responds online saying, oh, sorry, this is an error. We're going to you know, review and reverse it or something like that. And, and there was another Facebook employee who chimed in saying, I work for a different division, and as unbelievable as it sounds, this is true. But if that is the plan, right, and then the account gets reinstated, that's, a, that's one of the most incompetent conspiracies ever. Because the, the person who told him on Twitter also had on her account that she's a Facebook employee now, but she previously worked for the Democrats and Nancy Pelosi. And on, on Brett's recent Dark Horse podcast, He uses this as the smoking gun evidence of how the duopoly tried to censor him. You know, could they have made it more obvious?
0: Yeah, maybe they should have gotten a different employee, one that didn't have Democrat stuff in their bio.
1: Yeah, why would they, like, why would she she remove it from her bio? Or why not get someone else to respond? Like this take, which on the face of it might sound plausible. Oh, what? The ex-employee for the Democrats? But when you stop and just think about it, and what you're alleging it it becomes unbelievably idiotic as a conspiracy right it's a it's just such a bad conspiracy Mm. (laughs) and the much simpler explanation is whether it was a rogue employee or whether it was an algorithm glitch brett got banned and he shouldn't have yeah, and it was reversed.
0: Yeah, well, like I mean, like you know, there's this base rate neglect fallacy. Like I was just reading yesterday about um this this poor chap who who's I forget whether it was Twitter or Facebook or both, but he, he's basically his entire his entire thing is all about taking photographs of birds. He's a bird photographer. His entire account was about bird photography, <laughs> and um yeah, the, the the poor guy somehow got flagged and you know had his thing shut down without any recourse and so on um all very mysterious and there was no real reason for it and yeah it's a good example of how high-handed and of an arbitrary these um these actions often are now is there some conspiracy against people who take photographs of birds because that's literally all this guy's account was about of course there isn't so maybe the more prosaic and simple explanation applies here as well the other thing too is if there is if you assume this conspiracy is real then clearly the conspirators do not have full control of facebook since the connections that uh, eric can can marshal were able to overturn this and sympathetic or uh, amenable uh, employees contacted him so to believe this conspiracy is real then we'd have to believe that there's this power struggle happening <laughs> within facebook uh, regarding who or who does or doesn't get Suppressed? That, is, is that right?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think you've. That's what's going on, Matt. I mean, we've, we've come via a winding road, which started off a media and tech cabal creating a fake term to feed into the public narrative to help control everyone. That this was used to then alter the terms and conditions of the tech platforms to enable them to suppress heterodox podcasters and prevent them from challenging the preferred candidate selection for the 2020 election, which was presumably Joe Biden. And and here we are. Mm. Like, is it possible to over-exaggerate how much of a grand conspiracy theory which centers around the IDW and podcasters as an integral part of it this is, it's a it's a masterpiece.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the one thing I've got a hand to Eric is that uh, all these conspiracies, um, his conspiracy theories all involve him. Unlike the, the various, the more standard conspiracy theories out there around 9-11 or uh, Flat Earth or whatever you know, the conspiracy theories aren't usually about the conspirators themselves, you know, <laughs> it's usually about something else, something dramatic that happened in the news. He's, he's a little bit special in that all these conspiracy theories are all about what uh, disruptive and, and, and dangerous force uh, he is and, and or how Brett isn't being sufficiently recognised for, for his genius and, and so on. Like, yeah, he's invented the self aggrandizing conspiracy theory. I have to hand it to him. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, he's he's explaining now that he had to leave the public sphere a little bit because he was concerned that his account might be in danger or that he could end up facing this repression. And he didn't have a solution for the Biden and Trump duopoly. So he didn't want to throw away his account meaninglessly.
2: And so I took the time off so as not to give too much surface area to Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey and Sundar Pichai and whomever they are coordinating with or delegating to in the two to three months before the election and a couple of months thereafter. It is what the financial professionals call the uncompensated risk of losing my ability to communicate with you while the tech and media worlds are going for broke to control this election.
1: Again, there's just this level of self-aggrandizing that he potentially could have had the key to stopping this and that if he had come back and opined too strongly on things that they would have needed to stop him to like take him down so that's why he had to strategically withdraw I've said it repeated times but it's impossible to exaggerate the level of self-aggrandizing that the two Weinstein brothers display it's yeah. impossible to parody.
0: Yeah, it really is. I mean, you know, we don't want to rehash all the stuff we covered, but just this idea that following the election of Trump, there was this secret meeting of these shadowy organisations who then invented the fake news meme as a smokescreen to suppress brave voices of unity like his uh, to save America. Uh, it's uh, it's It's just... It just doesn't make any sense. It's just so annoying. Anyway.
1: And the last clip Matt, I'll play is Eric explaining to us how we are wrong. And the account that he's outlined is really the only possible interpretation.
2: There are now no other possibilities for those of us who have been watching this space that bear scrutiny given the inconsistency of the claims.
1: No other explanation. Sorry, no. Matt, but we are ah,
0: wrong. We're um, wrong. We, we, we had heaps of explanations though, Chris.
1: <laughs> I guess we haven't thought them through or something. We are the sheeple, Matt. So there, there's one point I didn't, I didn't cover it where he talks about the, the general public being unable to resist the message. And the obvious implication is like his audience can. Um, but I guess we fall into the kind of sheeple people.
2: It is simply too hard for ordinary people whose ability to feed their families depends on working for institutions to resist the drumbeats of either the Democratic or Republican master narratives.
0: Yeah, there's this thing that conspiracy theorists always have, which is this idea that, you know, they have to explain why it is that the vast majority of people... Don't can't see the truth that's right in front of their eyes. Can't you know? Won't accept the conspiracy theory, and uh, the usual trope is that the truth is too disturbing. The truth would rock their world so much and shatter all of their uh, treasured assumptions. Uh, and fond beliefs that we just have to block it out because it's too troubling for us. So maybe that's what we're doing, Chris. It is. It's, it would just be too, be too traumatic for us to it would just, to have our faith in, in, in civilization rocked like this.
1: Yeah, and uh, as per usual, there's a rallying call that presents like the forces of good versus the forces of evil.
2: They failed to come up with a workable strategy to control us because there is really nothing they can do short of totally draconian China-like measures, and so they will ultimately lose this battle one day.
1: Yes. So the tech platforms and disinformation agents like us will lose the battle. Yeah. The good people cannot be repressed. And
0: and there we are. Matt. So, uh, yeah. It's been fun. It's been a wild ride. I'm glad we did this. Um, am I? I'm not sure. Anyway, we did it.
1: yeah look it's an hour and a half on a 18 minute piece of content but eric is the alpha and omega of modern conspiracism you know he he just fits so much in the such a condensed amount of time and then like there's the fact you know that after that there's a four hour long podcast with someone so it's not like he just puts out these like small segments, but
0: yeah, well, we, we, we certainly can't cover the four hour podcast. It would take us several days
1: (laughs) (laughs) at this, at this week. So yeah, like usually we don't go this granular on things, but I, I just think this is just such an impressive example that it, it deserved a unusually thorough treatment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, our our deep dive on an eighteen minute audio essay. You know, you could decide whether or not we're um, instruments of the of the gin or the disc or whatever, or whether or not Eric uh, has got hold of the wrong end of the stick. Um, over and out from me. The, I think the other option, Matt, that
1: I would just mention is that we we could be also people with deep psychological issues. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> that's Perhaps that's the other problem, like why we subject ourselves to this and are willing to discuss it in, in detail. But but that's an issue for a future therapist. <laughs> and, uh, it's not going to change anytime soon. So next week, we have Rutger Bergman. Bregman. God, I'll get his name right before we get there. He's the... The guru that we're going to do the normal episode on and we'll we'll post the talk up on twitter soon i would say my my usual sign off uh, but i'm very self-conscious about it so matt you've already signed off but shall i make you do it again
0: (laughs) yes let's do it again all right all right nice talking to you chris all right bye bye bye